If you have your Bible with you and you'd like to turn to Galatians chapter 6, just two weeks left in this great letter here this week and next week, Galatians chapter 6, Paul has um, revealed that to live under the law, that is continuing to try to obey it as a means of making yourself right with God, doesn't fight our flesh, it gratifies our flesh. It gives our flesh exactly what it wants. In 5, 16 through 18, it literally gives the power back to the flesh, which is powerless to make us right with God, powerless to make us righteous at all. Believers live instead by the Holy Spirit, whose presence inside of them signifies already that one is a bona fide child of God, fully forgiven, fully righteous, justified, right with God. That is meant to lighten the load with which we live our lives. The yoke of Jesus is easy. He wasn't lying. When we believe on Him and embrace Him in our hearts, the burden we take on is light. Because we're no longer under the gun of trying to earn our way into God's covenant people by keeping a list of rules. We're accepted already. We're free. For the believer, good works are not the means of salvation. They have no monetary value before God to buy us a place at His table. They are the result of salvation. Since we have been freed from trying to earn our salvation and our standing with God through our effort, we are now free to expend any and all of our energy instead serving each other. I don't have to worry anymore about getting. I've been given everything. Now I can just give. And so the gospel is the key to love and good works in the church, everything else stifles love and good works. Everything else but the gospel stifles love and good works in the church. Work can get done through weight and guilt and burdens and demands and manipulation of your emotions and expectations laid on us, but those things will so taint and damage the works that are done All we'll do is create a culture of weariness and overwork and resentment and burnout. Freedom enables us to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ with no strings attached. Living by the Spirit is the path forward to peace and joy for the church. Jesus Christ bought this for His people. If we will walk by the Spirit, that is, if we will walk by faith and in freedom as He intended we will glorify God. The Spirit will be producing His fruit in us. As Paul now begins to unpack here, if you will, the Christian life that glorifies God the Father and exalts His Son, Jesus Christ, is the free life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by the power of the flesh. So if you're able, would you please stand with me? I'll read verses 1 through 10 of Galatians 6. And then we'll pray. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. 
Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. We ask, Father, that by your Spirit, you would help us understand your Son in this text. Father, I pray that you would please help me preach in a way that is clear, that glorifies you, that does justice to these words. And Father, would you please help everyone understand and hear. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual... That doesn't refer to Christian special forces or something. It's not uh, an elite group of Christians that are separate from the rest. It's a phrase describing now what Christians are. We are spiritual people now. We are not fleshly ones, right? We live by the Spirit. We don't live by the flesh. But even, apparently, spiritual people still battle with their flesh to such an extent that sometimes they too can be caught in, literally caught in, transgressions. So, beloved, realize just very quickly as we consider again verse 21 back in chapter 5 and what it means for the believer that those who do the things on that list there will not inherit the kingdom of God, now we understand it's actually absolutely possible that genuine believers can be, as 6.1 says, caught in a transgression. It doesn't mean they lose their salvation or nobody's ever saved, right? And of course we can get caught up in transgressions even though we live by the Spirit because we still struggle with our flesh and sometimes we lose the battle. But Christ has won the war and in Him and Him alone we stand. So what are the spiritual people? That is the church supposed to do for each other when someone does get caught up once again in a transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore one another and do it gently. We like the first part. We know the first part. We do the first part. We don't always do the second. Gently. Which can only be done, think about this, which can only be done if we're walking by the Spirit, since gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit in 5.23. It doesn't come out of the flesh. 6.1 then can only be obeyed if we're walking by the Spirit. Only the Spirit can produce this. It can't be obeyed if we try to obey it by effort, which is the flesh by definition. People living under the law then. People trying to obey commands in the power of their flesh, their effort, their willpower. They have no business attempting to restore people who are caught up in transgressions. That's bad. For one thing, such people can't do anything in a spirit of gentleness. There's nothing gentle about being motivated by law. There's nothing gentle about those who do these things shall live by them. 
There's nothing gentle about people who are trying to do everything they're supposed to do in the power of their flesh when their attitude is, so you better get your act together. You better straighten up and fly right or else how can you call yourself a Christian if you struggle with these things? If people are caught in transgressions, the path to restoration is gentleness. It's the Spirit. Remind them of what Christ has accomplished for them. Remind them of His grace and of His mercy and draw them back in love. Beloved, think about something for a moment. In Matthew 18, 15-16, which we know from the way Paul speaks, he would have heard these things from Jesus. When church discipline takes place, again, it's, it's so rare now, we, people don't even know what it is anymore. We just have quit obeying that and quit being faithful to that for some reason. But when that takes place, the removal of a member of the church, it's actually not based finally on the kind of sin one has committed. As though, you know, the really serious ones, you, you get removed for those, but the ones we just tolerate and put up with like gossip and complaining and murmuring and rotten, hurtful attitudes, we just let those things go indefinitely until they've all but destroyed the fellowship and unity of a church. But it's not based, church discipline isn't based on the kind of sin, finally, that one has committed. First, there's a three-step process given by Jesus in Matthew for such a one that is followed so that they're given opportunity to be restored. So, what is the only sin that a person can be removed from the church for? It's unrepentance. That's the only sin that can remove somebody from a church if they're unrepentant of it. The repenting believer has nothing to fear. Why? Because the grace of God is greater than our sins. So we restore and call back and go after in a spirit of gentleness because there's no longer any need for force or strength or coercion. We should as Christians know by now that that does not work and it doesn't produce the kind of fruit that God requires It can produce things. That doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not God accepts what is produced. And God only accepts the fruit of the Spirit, not of the flesh. Jesus saved us by giving Himself for us. Right? Is there any more gentle way to save your enemies than to die the death they deserved for them? Do we realize how gentle that is on us? All the weight went on Jesus, not on us. The second part of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So no one in the church can act towards anyone else in the church in the pursuit of restoration without first bearing in mind their own remaining frailty. So the base from which I act is never self-confidence. It's never self-righteousness. Here our Lord speaking in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus there, think, Jesus assumes there that noticing what is wrong with someone else before taking care of what is wrong with ourselves proves that our issue is bigger because self-righteousness is attached to it. Do we understand that? And if self-righteousness is a log to Jesus, while whatever our neighbor is dealing with is a speck, we need to be much more concerned with our own failings than the failings and progress, etc., of others. 
Jesus goes on, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, the misnomer. The Bible says don't judge. No, the Bible says make sure you see clearly before you judge. Don't judge by appearances. Right? Judge with right judgment. Jesus teaches us to always assume before anything else that I have a log in my eye keeping me from seeing clearly. I should always start there. Always. Whenever I notice something, oh, that's right, there's a log in my eye. So I can't see it clearly anyway. So we never assume sinless perfection. We never start with I'm right. Rather, we start at the self-awareness of our own remaining sinfulness. In fact, that gets to the heart of the whole matter here If we were more self-aware and less others-obsessed, most fights would be stopped before they even began. And no one would be able to wander too far, right? Not because we're policing one another every second, but because we are all starting with the assumption that we are frail. We are still struggling. We have not yet arrived. Oh, beloved, how that would suffocate just suffocate discord and conflict. Right? If, if, if the default position towards one another was gentleness, rather than just suspecting the worst of our brothers and sisters in Christ the minute something is off, right? Imagine if we just followed the scripture. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. A gentleness coming from what? The gospel-centered self-awareness that just keeps us from ever getting too rough. The thought in this verse is that if we don't have this type of self-awareness, we not only are doing damage to one another, we are opening ourselves up to temptation. Isn't that interesting? The greatest and most dangerous temptations then are not outside of me, they are inside of me, mainly starting in my default assumption that I am right. When I feed my flesh's default position that I'm right, I open myself up to being tempted by anything else that would feed my flesh. Do we understand how this all goes together? The heartbeat of love within the church is not watching each other, waiting for someone to mess up so that we can pounce on them. We keep watch on ourselves. This is God's provision for peace in the church. We don't have time to make others our personal projects. In fact, we restore one another in a spirit of gentleness once we realize someone is caught in something. Not every single time a person slips up. You see how the Word gives the path to a certain tone to our life together as the body of Christ and it's all flowing out of our depth of understanding. Justification by grace through faith alone the gospel there's a better way beloved to go and it's the way of Christ in the church so the passage starts with the reality of the ongoing struggle with our flesh that we all fall prey to and the calling that because of what Christ has accomplished we can live in a certain way towards even our errant brothers and sisters in Christ look at verse 2 bear one another's burdens And so fulfill the law of Christ. There it is. Your load has been lightened. 
so pick up your sister or your brothers. Right? This is when and how the law of Christ is fulfilled in the church. Now, the law of Christ. We haven't seen that yet in Galatians. What, what is that? Well, first of all, we can't read Galatians without it leaping off the page at us that New Covenant believers, Christians, are not under the law. That does not mean, however, that there's nothing guiding our lives. But when you see that phrase, is it just now then that we have a different law guiding our lives than the law of Moses? No, the Holy Spirit is guiding our lives, believer. Remember, the Holy Spirit is guiding our lives. The law of Christ is not like the law of Moses. It's not like the law of the flesh. It is not the means by which we can be justified. It frees us. It does not enslave us. Obedience to the law of Christ is fulfilled when we walk by the Spirit. Notice this. Paul says the phrase almost in passing. Like, like you, you know what I mean when I say that, the law of Christ. But he doesn't give any details. Not one other than bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ as though that's the whole thing, right? He doesn't detail it. He doesn't start a new paragraph of just precisely what that is, right? There's no detailed list or description of the law of Christ like there is very clearly in the law of Moses, down to the most minute of details. There's no detailed list or description to the law of Christ like there is for the law of Moses, precisely because they're so different. There's no need for a list for the law of Christ. Jesus isn't over us, bearing down on us, Every single day, threatening death, giving commands, measuring us, driving us. This is not the law of Christ. It's not hanging around our necks, suffocating us. In fact, we completely fulfill the entire thing just by taking on the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is profoundly simplistic. Like the burden of having to love them gently through their transgressions as long as we can until they just refuse to repent in verse 1. The law of Christ cannot be, nor does it need to be codified into a new list. That's not the point. There are whole books that try to break this thing down. I think I have all of them in my office. I used to read them and read them and read them and read them. I don't know why I still have them. I, I, I don't read them anymore. Paul mentions it twice that I can think of. And in neither place, when he mentions the law of Christ, does he expand on it at all. At all. Ever. No, it's, it's simply, as we believe in Christ, by faith, the Spirit is producing the fruit in us that Jesus Christ displayed in His life. It is the way in which Jesus walked in love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. The law of Moses, we remember from Galatians, is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself, 5.14. The law of Christ is fulfilled when we bear one another's burdens. That command, this is what Jesus commands, bear one another's burdens to people who are already justified. Remember that. Already forgiven, already accepted, already declared righteous. 
Right? So we are never more distinctly Christian than when we're bearing one another's burdens. Right? It, it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful platter just set in front of us to bear one another's burdens. Nothing could be more Christ-like than taking the burden of another onto yourself and carrying it for them because that's precisely what Jesus Christ did at the cross for all those He saves. He carried all of their sin, all of their burden, as He would carry yours if you come to Him this morning. All of it. Fulfilling the law of Christ is not our contribution of good works. It's our reflection of His good works. The law of Christ clarifies that to love one's neighbor as oneself is to bear his or her burdens as if they were our own. Right? Jesus is the true good Samaritan who healed us and made us well at his own expense from his own pocket. And notice this flows right out of verse 2 in knowing our own weaknesses, our own place, right? That's where it's determined or when it's determined whether we'll bear one another's burdens. Because in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, that's not very nice. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. As long as we think we are something, as long as we take ourselves way too seriously, when in fact we are nothing, the church will only be a hall of mirrors reflecting ourselves. The mark of thinking too highly of oneself then is a refusal to be willing to pick up and carry the burdens of another. It's the epitome of lacking self-awareness as well as the epitome of not believing The gospel, it's like being given a meal for free and then refusing to share it as though you had earned it and paid for it. That's what it means to bear one another's burdens. It doesn't mean to say in passing, I'll pray for you, although that's in and of itself not a sin. I'm saying that's not necessarily bearing one another's burdens. That means to feel them. Right? It would mean to take on the weight of it. Literally as your own weight. Now, Paul is saying we're deceived about our condition when we won't do that or when we think that's beneath us. How could it be beneath us when it wasn't beneath Christ? Where the cross is not seen, people cannot be loved. Right? Where the cross is not front and center and clear, not assumed, not on the periphery, front, center, proclaimed, clear. When it is not, People cannot be loved in the way of Christ. They can't. Remember, back in 526, don't become conceited. That is, here, don't forget how you got saved. Jesus bore your burden. That's salvation. That's how it happened, right? Bearing one another's burdens is the heartbeat of the church. It's the heartbeat of the church. We don't bear the burdens of others to pay Jesus back for what He's done for us. We simply bear them because burden-bearing is Christian. It is Christianity. Burden-bearing is Christianity. It's what everything is based on. Burdens being borne by someone else on behalf of everyone else. 
our lives are a reflection of His selflessness is distinctly Christ-like. Go verse 4. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That's an interesting verse here in context. It's said as though it's the implication of verse 3. Right? It's the proof that we do not know who we are or how we got to be where we are when we can't bear one another's burdens. When our boast is actually, think about this, in our ability to change other people's lives rather than in Christ who saved us. Right? When all is said and done, in what are you going to boast? What will we look to for confidence? The effect we've had on other people's lives? Right? On your neighbor? Is that what we'll look to for confidence in the end? Is that what we'll look to boast in? Is that what we'll look to God for validation with? Look what I did for other people. Look what I've done to change other people's lives. That is worldly. Right? It's worldly and the, the world feeds it and then the church helps. If, if, if what we look to for confidence is the effect we've been able to have on the lives of other people when we are so in need, then that's nothing but a recipe for pride and self-righteousness and discord as it has been to prove that as it has been in Galatians. Now when all is said and done and what will we boast? Since in verse 5, each one will have to bear his own load. We'll boast in Christ alone or we'll perish we won't be conceited. We won't be resting on our laurels. We'll be boasting in Christ. We won't be comparing ourselves to our neighbors. We won't be listing our accomplishments and achievements. My grandfather died 11 years ago. My dad's dad. He was a great man. He came here from Italy. He joined the Navy. He, his ship was sunk. He floated overnight in the Pacific Ocean at Guadalcanal and was rescued, he received the Purple Heart, all, all these things. At the end of my grandfather's life, the last two or three years, every time I, literally, every time I was with him, all he talked about was what he had accomplished in the Navy. I, I don't say that to disrespect him or speak poorly of him. What was going on there? That he would repeat the same stories to me all the time. And it wasn't that I didn't like to hear them. That's not my point. What was happening there? My grandfather was trying to find his significance and his value in what he had accomplished in his life. And it gave him nothing. Nothing. His boast was in the Navy. His boast was not in Christ. That's tragic. Like, I'm not talking down about my grandfather here. That's a tragedy to me. Right, my, my grandfather died, as far as I know, not knowing Christ. Right, that's a tragedy against the backdrop of eternity. Beloved, to look to ourselves and what we've accomplished for validation, for meaning, for purpose leads not only to us, therefore, hurting anyone and everyone that won't contribute to it with me, it reaps death because my boast is not in Christ alone.
We don't want to come to the end comparing ourselves to our neighbors, believing that we'll be accepted because of what we've accomplished, or believing we'll be rejected for what we haven't. No, because when we're thinking rightly, we never think of ourselves above others, which prevents us from doing the actual work of a Christian that any Christian can do, bearing one another's burdens. We want to come to the end of our lives self-aware of the fact that we are nothing in verse 3. Precisely so we are not deceived. Right? I, to come to the end, I know I'm a wretch. I know I don't deserve a seat at his table. Therefore, we served others. Beloved, we want to come to that day empty-handed, trusting Christ alone and his righteousness to stand in our place for us and have him bear our burden once more. That's faith, to know what saves us, and it isn't us. Right? Look at verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. That seems like it's completely out of place, doesn't it? So it seems like, like is there a transition here to another subject, but it isn't. It, and it isn't in isolation from the section, nor is it in isolation from the rest of the letter. It's not something tacked on. It seems as though, as we know by now, that the Galatian churches, they're being selfish, at least as he was writing to them. Remember, they've been bewitched, he's told them. They're acting foolishly. We know from the middle of verse 5 that they're biting and devouring and consuming one another. We know now, we can imply very heavily now from chapter 6, that they all think they're too good. That's what law-keeping will do to you. It'll make you look down on the struggling believer. It won't let you look on him with gentleness. Right? So all this is going on, so they're not fulfilling the law of Christ. They're doing the opposite of everything he's saying here, and they're serving themselves. Why can we think that? Because they have given themselves over. They gave themselves over to false teaching. I think that's what verse 6 is doing. Make sure, I think Paul is saying, make sure you're taking care of the ones who teach you the word, that is, bearing the burden of their financial need, because false teachers are out there. Right? Make sure they can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer as was intended by the great shepherd for his church. And to do that, you have to provide for them financially. So, stop using money to serve only yourself. I think that's the context here. It's hurting you to do that, Galatia. It's hurting you to do that. That's what he's referring to here, by the way, financial support. It's, it's uh, the same idea, same, almost same type of wording in 1 Corinthians 9.14, 1 Timothy 5.17. Luke uses the same phrase, good things, twice to point to the same thing in Luke 12.18 and 16.25. The verb share is used in other places to refer to financial provision, specifically Romans 12.13, Philippians 4.15. So it's important in the New Testament to provide enough financially for the preachers, the teachers of the Word, so that they can give the necessary time and prayer that is needed to their task. If we don't, if they get sidetracked and burdened down financially, and then they can't focus to the extent that they need to on the task of teaching, the content will wane, 
the spirit, the eagerness of the man will wane and the church or the men in this position and the church will suffer, which will widen the path for false teaching to take root in the church. Again, it goes back to self-awareness and a sense of need, of dependency. As a congregation, we need to be saying, we need the Word. We need you to have the time to feed us properly. We haven't arrived. We're still struggling. People are caught in transgressions. False teachers are creeping in. We need the Word from you. We need you to be given to it and dedicated to it and bringing it to us. Right. So a, a church doesn't technically pay a pastor a salary. I know that sounds weird to say, but that's actually not how we should think of it because that certain gives certain connotations. Rather, because of the Word, a church realizes its own need and says, okay, we need to provide pastors with the financial support that will allow them to devote their time to what I cannot devote my time to precisely because I do go to work every day. I don't have time to devote to study and prayer like they do. By the way, Our church is very kind to my family in this. We are deeply thankful to you. You do this very well. There is zero complaint about you here. Please understand that. Please. But we always need to be aware of the implications for us in these verses. And it's weird to even talk about it in some ways because I benefit directly from verses like this. right? So it it seems self-serving. I hope it's not that way. I will never work like some of you do, as far as I know. And I don't want to pretend for a second that I know the weight you carry in having to go to your various jobs every single day. You guys that do things like that, those of you that that go down into those mines, please know, like, I, I have you on a pedestal. That is deeply serious, and I respect you deeply for things like that. So I don't I don't take it lightly that you pay me to do this. Church, I just want you to know that. I really want you to know that. My heart burns to preach this word to you, so I try to give myself to it completely for your sakes. But what the Bible here here's the thing, though. What the Bible is really getting at here is the fact that all of us, all of us are in constant and desperate need of Christ. To believe Him, to hear about Him, to be reminded of Him, to be reminded of how much we need Him, that's really the basis for this. Not that the pastor is special. No, 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 no. Jesus is special. Right? I mean, look, look, when you think about how much we need Christ, look at verses 7 and 8. This is why I would say that. I'd say that's the heartbeat here. Look at 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Beloved, do you see the heart of the issue here? If verses 7 and 8 are true, you and I really need Jesus. We are not to mock God with our money. Which again requires that we know our need. That we know what is most important. If we sow to our own flesh. That is if we just serve ourselves with what we have. All we'll reap is corruption. Death. If you look at the flip side of it later in the verse. 
Where if we sow to the Spirit here, specifically by bearing one another's burdens and giving to others, we will then reap from the Spirit eternal life. The flesh can only give death. The Spirit will only give life, believer. So be careful where you sow, Paul is saying, because God is not mocked. Does that mean now that we're saved by works then? By sinless perfection. What if I mess up? What if somewhere along the line I sow to my flesh like, like, like 6-1? Right? If I'm caught in a transgression. Keep in mind the other verses when you hit a scary one. Okay? We know verse 8, whatever it means, doesn't mean that you have to be perfect and never sin or you go to hell. The function of the text And beloved, the function of every text is to throw us onto Christ. So, I think at some point it gets dangerous to parse and interpret and dissect as though life is to be found in these verses. If we just wring them out hard enough, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And I tell you, they bear witness about me, Jesus said. So is Paul speaking cryptically here that so that I will trust in nothing but Christ? Is he saying that I won't go to heaven if I sow to my flesh? Is he trying to scare me so that I will trust in nothing but Christ? Yep, all of that. So what can we do? Let's, again, back up for a moment. Look at that verse and say, okay, whatever it means, what is my only hope? It's Christ It's Christ. (laughs) I just said that. I just... I can hear it. Right? We, we, We can trust in nothing but Christ. What other hope do we have? What other hope do we have? Right? If if we look at the verse and think, okay, I have to apply that and do it or I die. No. In Christ is life. The, the, the verses, when they're scary, they're pushing you back to Him. Because what is the alternative? Alright, i got to make sure I never sow to my flesh. If that is that to be the basis of how we believe we're saved? After the rest of Galatians and the rest of Scripture, we know it isn't. But it means something. So what is it doing? It's pushing us to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. So, so, so what do I do? How do I sow to the Spirit? I look to Christ. I look to Christ. Don't sow to the flesh. The only thing the flesh can reap is corruption. So, in other words, look at the flow of Paul's thought here. When it seems like giving is a waste, right? When it seems like you just keep having to help somebody struggle through the same old stuff, and they never seem to get it. You just have to keep bearing other people's burdens. When it seems like everything you do is ultimately for nothing, and nothing is happening, and no good is coming of it, you're just spinning your wheels. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, right? As every single time we have the opportunity, Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Verse 10 reads like a summary statement of the whole section, doesn't it? Do good to everyone, even your enemies. 
but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, if we're watching, listening, here's more of the fruit of the Spirit. Goodness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of the flesh. Do good to everyone. The flesh cannot produce that. Paul is not telling us to live by doing. It's Paul telling us there, commands are telling you, walk by the Spirit, not try it really hard by your flesh to obey it. We are called to do good to all, but especially to our family in Christ Jesus. That doesn't, like, that doesn't seem, is that a little self-serving? It's, it's John thirteen thirty-five, right? Love one another as I have loved you. By this the world will know that you're my disciples. We try a lot of stuff to get the world to know we follow Jesus. You know why? Because John thirteen thirty-five is impossible to obey. Love one another as God has loved us. Who's got that on tap? Nobody. Right? So we've replaced it. They'll know we're the disciples of Jesus if you bear one another's burdens. Jesus is so non-flashy. <laughs> Just take care of one another. They'll know. Right, Take care of one another in a world where the goal is to take care of yourself and they'll know you belong to me. That's a powerful text. That's a powerful text. I believe 1 Timothy 5.8 teaches us to care first and foremost for our own families. I think that's first and foremost. I think the rest of the New Testament seems to teach some type of concentric circles that we then like verses like this go to our local church, then to believers outside our local church, then to the rest of the world. I don't want you to be, feel constrained by that as though you, you know, I just, I just think that's a, a way to look at it. And all, it all goes back to 513 and what we're called to as believers, serve one another through love, which is what? The first fruit of the Spirit in 522. Christians, we are called to live a certain kind of life. Yes, but we are also called to live it in a certain kind of way. And it isn't by grit. It isn't by commitment or willpower or dedication that puts all the onus on you. It is bound to fail. That's why we have to keep repeating those words once we use them. Renewed commitments. Read that. We just said like me, 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 me. It's only by faith. It's only by faith. How do you walk with the Holy Spirit, though, when you can't see Him with the eye? We can only walk with Him by faith, never by sight, never by the flesh. Which means we're just going to have to focus on believing the gospel and trust that our Lord God, through the Spirit in Christ, will take care of the rest. It's all gelling now in Galatians. The Christian life that glorifies God the Father and exalts His Son, Jesus Christ, is the free life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the power of the flesh. And the free life is the life that reflects the burden-bearing nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because, why is that freeing? Because to bear one another's burdens means we realize we're not carrying our own anymore. Right? That's the free life. I'm free. I have nothing weighing me down. I've been justified by grace through faith. 
The free life is the life that reflects the burden-bearing nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As He was free, as He was free from any need to atone for His own sins, He had none, or to make up for any deficiencies, as He was free from having to gain God's favor by His works, beloved, because He bore all these burdens for us, because we were filled with sins and unrighteousness and deficiencies, He bore all of that for us, taking it away, carrying it, finishing it. Because of that, because of Him, we are now just as free as Him. Righteous, forgiven, clean. We have God's acceptance. We want for none of that from Him. We're free. You're not taking other people's loads onto your load of trying to become justified. You are justified, believer. Right, listen, listen to the way we talk. We talk about how we're so burdened down. And I know we are. I'm not making light of it. I just at, let, Let's go to the Lord in prayer and say, these burdens that I carry, am I carrying them because I believe I will be justified through what I do and don't get done? That's meant to, that's meant to free you. It's meant to, that, it's meant to free you. We may now walk as He walked. God does not need our good works, but our neighbors do. Our brothers and sisters in Christ do. Right? Moundsville does. Our world does. Our nation does. But we're free, so we're not to hear that like we would hear the law of Moses. It's all on me. i got to make a difference. i got to save the world. That will lead you to the flesh. That's the flesh talking. Only the flesh thinks it can save the world. It's not a weight we'll have to carry or we'll be kicked out of God's covenant community. We hear it as the law of Christ who has bought for us and brought us all the way in to God's covenant community by His blood and His righteousness and we lack nothing. That's the basis of all goodness because when it isn't, there's only discord, only burden, only weight, only conflict, only trouble. Beloved, there's a better way. We're justified, we're forgiven, we belong to Him, we're free, so let us use that advantage for others as God gives us grace. Since we have everything we need in Christ. So I ask to every single one of you this morning, do you have Christ? Better yet, does He have you? Do you believe that He will forgive all of your sins by His blood? And nothing else. Do you believe that all of His righteousness will be yours to make you right with God and nothing else? If you do, praise God, rest in it and be free. If you don't, come to Him and believe. He will not turn you away. Ever. June is going to come. I'm going to pray. I'll be down in front. If any of you would like to come and pray for any reason, if you want to join our church, anything like this, the front will be open. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished. It's the basis of everything we have, everything we are. And Lord, I pray that each person in this room before we part ways this morning will believe in your son, Jesus Christ. And will you hold them up and make them stand forever as you've promised to do. 
We ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.